Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Right after the election, I was talking to a writer who said, I'm just so mad that now I have to write about him. He said, I don't want to have to write about him, but if I'm thinking of writing about the things that I'm thinking about all the time, well, I'll be thinking about him. And now, now it's limited. It's like you have to write about this thing, but you don't because, you know, it comes out in different ways. I mean, I don't mention his name there's this, um, you know, a character at the end of the book refers to the election as the big terribleness. Uh, but I don't, this book isn't about just this moment. I want it, I want it to be not a non-disposable thing. But yes, we're, if you reflect on the culture as a fiction writer, it's not that you have to write about, say, Donald Trump. One of the things you write about is the experience of being alive at this moment in time, if that's something you choose to write about. A gender equal society will be one where the word gender does not exist, where everyone can be themselves. The straight-up words of American journalist, writer and activist Gloria Steinem. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What does it mean to be a feminist? And is there no limit to ambition? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with best-selling American author and cultural critic Meg Wolitzer, whose latest book, The Female Persuasion, has just been published by Chateau and Windus, where Meg writes, What made you become the person you are today? Interviewers sometimes wanted to know over the years, asking the question as if they were the first person to have asked it. Was it a single thing? Was there an aha moment? Well, no, there wasn't one in particular, Faith always said, but she thought that maybe there had been a series of moments and this was the way it was for most people. The small realisations leading you first towards an important understanding and then towards doing something about it. Along the way too, there will be people you would meet who would affect you and turn you ever so slightly in a different direction. Suddenly, you knew what you were working for and you didn't feel as if you were wasting your time. So what does it take to get ahead in the workplace? And why is having a mentor so important? I'm Meg Wallitzer, and my novel is called The Female Persuasion. And it is a story about female power and mentorship and the person you might meet who changes your life forever. It's also a novel about feminism and misogyny and other issues that I've been really thinking about and writing about for a very long time. I live in New York City. I've been writing fiction since I graduated from university, and I've been working as a writer, and this novel is one that appeared in the States in April, and I went on a book tour for it, and I'm in the UK now talking about it, and I'm very happy to be doing that. Susan, I'm going to read a little bit from the book, and to set it up for you, um, this is a section in the book when my main character, whose name is Greer Kadetsky, and she is a college student in 2006. And she is assaulted, groped by a frat brother at a party. And she doesn't quite know what to do about it because the college seems very uninterested in really um, dealing with it in a serious way. And the famous feminist, the second wave feminist, Faith Frank, comes to speak. And Faith is described in the book as being two or three steps down in fame from Gloria Steinem. 
So we have a sense of who she is and where she is in the world and in the firmament of feminism. And Faith goes around to colleges and speaks, and she's a dynamic, charismatic speaker. She wears boots that she's kind of famous for. And Greer wants to go hear her to ask her, what can I do about the way I feel about things? So this is just a little bit of a kind of amuse-bouche, a little sense of the moment when Greer hears Faith speak for the first time. And Faith is in her 60s, and she was quite big in the 1970s, and Greer is 18 years old. At the podium, Faith said, whenever I give a talk at colleges, I meet young women who say, I'm not a feminist, but, by which they mean, I don't call myself a feminist, but I want equal pay, and I want to have equal relationships with men, and of course, I want to have an equal right to sexual pleasure. I want to have a fair and good life. I don't want to be held back because I'm a woman. Later, Greer understood that what Faith had actually said in her speech was only one part of the whole effect. Really, it was about more than her words. What also mattered was that it was her speaking them, meaning them, conveying them with such feeling to everyone in this room. And I always want to reply, said Faith, what do you think feminism is other than that? How do you think you're going to get those things if you deny the political movement that is all about obtaining that life that you want? She stopped for a moment, and they all thought about this, some of them surely thinking about themselves. They watched her take a slow and deliberate drink of water, which was somehow, Greer realized, highly interesting. To me, Faith continued, there are two aspects to feminism. The first is individualism, which is that I get to shape my own life, that I don't have to fit into a stereotype, doing what my mother tells me, conforming to someone else's idea of what a woman is. But there's a second aspect, too, and here I want to use the old-fashioned word sisterhood, which may make you groan a little and head for the exits in a stampede, but I'll just have to take that chance. There was laughter. They were all listening. They were all with her now, and they wanted her to know it. Sisterhood, she said, is about being together with other women in a cause that allows all women to make the individual choices they want. Because as long as women are separate from one another, organized around competition, like in a children's game, where only one person gets to be the princess, then it will be the rare woman who is not in the end narrowed and limited by our society's idea of what a woman should be. She stopped again and looked out across the whole room, sweeping her gaze across them. The next time you say, I'm not a feminist, remember all this. Oh, and here's a final thought. Along the way, as you're fighting for what matters, you will definitely come up against resistance, and that can sometimes be upsetting and even throw you off course. The truth is that not everyone is going to agree with you. Not everyone is going to like you or love you. That's right, some people will be really mad at you and maybe even hate you, and that is going to be hard to accept. But my feeling is that if you're out there doing what matters, if it's any consolation at all, I love you. She smiled a brief, encouraging smile at them, and that was it. Greer folded. She was taken in completely, taken up, wanting more of this forever. Faith had made her little joke about loving them, but as Greer listened to Faith, what she herself felt seemed closely related to falling in love. Greer knew all about falling in love, the way discovering her boyfriend, Corey, had shaken her around, messed with her cells. This was like that, but without the physical desire. The sensation wasn't sexual, but the word love still seemed relevant here. Love, which pollinated the air around Faith Frank. 
I'm smiling at my mic here, Meg. Really well done on uh, the you. female persuasion and what a terrific reading. Um, I have to say the book brings up so many thought-provoking questions, some very uncomfortable ones, but very necessary ones, I think, that have to be asked of society. And I might throw one of them at you uh, straight away. What does it mean to be a feminist? What does it mean to you? And what springs to mind when I say the word feminism? Well, one other word occurs to me when you say it, and that's equality. I think that is something that binds feminists of different eras, of different generations. Um, There is tension, of course. We know there's tension between generations. But honestly, feminists want equality. And I think it's such a moving word when I think about it. It's about human dignity, about the right to have what other people have and the right to have equality if you're female. It's, it's quite simple in that regard. The female persuasion has been described by one critic as a feminist blockbuster. I'm just wondering, did you set out to write a feminist novel? Was that your intention or did that just happen as this story progressed in your mind? You know, my friend, the writer Mary Gordon, told me a story once that she gave a reading with the wonderful late writer Grace Paley. And Grace Paley was asked something like, do you write like a woman? And Grace Paley said... If if a horse could write a novel, it would write like a horse. I'm a woman, so I guess I write like a woman. And I would sort of take that and say, I'm a feminist, so I guess I write like a feminist. And my novels, I think, are feminist novels. But if a man wrote um, The Female Persuasion today and was put out, given um, all that we've seen with the Me Too campaign, do you think um, different aspects of the book would have been picked up upon in a a slightly more nuanced way? Or is it that, you know, that we look at uh, books, whoever's producing them, male or female, and type almost kind of, I suppose, typecast them into being a certain type for a certain audience? There are headlines that come out in book reviews that are are sort of the takeaway, but I've gotten some very nuanced reviews. I'm not complaining about the reviews that I got in the States. They really seem to take the book very seriously, and I've been very grateful about that. But but some of these issues are real, certainly. I mean, all of these issues are real. Uh, It's something I think about, but all I can do really is write the books that I want to find on the shelf, and that's really my focus when I'm writing. Would it be fair to describe the female persuasion as a reflection on ambition and within that flexibility and compromise? Because you're touching on a lot of those issues in the book between all your various characters. And some of the, you know, the uh, stories within it are so unexpected in ways, but they're all tackling their own ambition and then having to live, live with the compromises that are worked through that ambition. Yeah, I think that ambition is something that I wasn't sure I was going to be writing about, although Greer is very ambitious. You know, she's the kind of character who, she gets very hot-faced very easily. She thinks of herself as shy, but she has a lot of ambition for herself. She knows answers, but she can't really offer opinions. That's her frustration as a child. But she and her boyfriend, Corey, are described by Greer's mother as twin rocket ships, meaning they're going to go far, they have big ambition, and it's going to be kind of a straight line. But as I got older myself, I started realizing the ways that people's lives didn't turn out the way they wanted always and and the way you might change your desires for yourself, that your ambitions might be cut through with other things. One of them can certainly be compromised. And that's one of the big issues that we see, not to give too much away, but faith um, has to deal with compromise when it comes to uh, running a feminist foundation and dealing with lots of money. And money, I think, sometimes makes, makes things really very murky. 
I'm just wondering, what do you think are the key characteristics that carry people through in the workplace and, and within their professions um, to reach these um, heights of success? Because you can have all the ambition in the world, but, you know, look and timing plays a part, health plays a part, resilience plays a part. So many different things, you know what I mean? But timing has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? Timing is huge. Timing is is sort of, I, I would put timing under the umbrella of luck as well. My last novel, The Interestings, which dealt with talent, looking at talent over time. One of the things that I realized when writing that book was how much the people who made it, and they were all in the arts. It was about really trying to be an artist and have the kind of life that you thought you could have when you, when you were a child and dreamed about maybe being an actor or a cartoonist or a writer. So much of it is luck. Like, what kind of parents did you have? What kind of money do you have? Do you have a place to live? Is you know, and, and the timing is part of it, too. Absolutely. And I think that that's really a good point that you bring up. Luck. Timing. We think that we have agency over everything, but we really don't. And then when we broaden the light and look at issues in relation to morality, um, integrity, principle and all of that stuff, and then and how we support our colleagues, it becomes a greater minefield, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not fair the way life isn't fair. You can say, I have more talent that that, than that person does. Or why did that person get a promotion? I've worked harder or I thought I'm more likable, whatever it is. Um, I think that you, it, it's very, very complicated. Every element that you add in sort of muddies it and complicates it more. But I, at least for me, I try not to look at my life like a biography. I think that a, a well-lived life is one where you're really always sort of trying to figure out problems that engage you. So what was a big question um, you were uh, trying to tackle when you set out uh, to write The Female Persuasion and how did that change as you progressed through the story and developed the characters? Because, as I said, you're covering a lot of ground in the book. Yeah, definitely covering a lot of ground. I mean, one of the one of the big ones was about female power. What is it? Does it look different than in a man? Um, are we ambivalent about it? What does it mean to have power for anyone, really? And I, I just, what I like to do when I'm really beginning a book is just sort of have a problem that I want to kind of work on. And it's not that I'm going to have an answer in the book. I don't think I've ever really had answers in any of the books that I've written, because I think that if I did, it could be a polemic or or a how-to book. And I don't know how to. I don't really know how to. I think what novels do... Um, is show what is it like. So here I was sort of trying to say, what is it like for a woman who wants to make a difference in the world? What is it like to try to make meaning in the world? And I just was looking at that again and again. I presume through your writing career, you have had many mentors, have you? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, I don't know that I thought of them using that word at the time, but looking back from the vantage point of being older, it's absolutely true that there were different women who were extremely generous to me. And in fact, uh, eight of them are are in my dedication to, to the female persuasion. They didn't have to be generous. It's not, I, they just wanted to. And I, I'm, you know, it changed me. It helped me 
as a writer in very, very big ways. But it's interesting whether you seek out mentors formally or informally. They can have a profound effect on the trajectory of your life and oh, some of the other questions that you ask yourself. And it's all down to who, who, who comes in, again, bringing in luck and who walks into your life or who, who you're seeking out. And the impact over the years um, is quite something. And I'm wondering, you know, when, you know, young men and women in their 20s, um, you don't necessarily think about how how one person can unbelievably influence your life. Yes, I was someone who, when I was young, really um, looked up a lot to certain older people. I mean, my mother is is a writer, too, who's 88 and a brilliant novelist named Hilma Wallitzer. And she was never encouraged by her parents. Uh, she, you know, they said, oh, you don't need a higher education. So she didn't uh, go to college in any real way. She took a course here and there. She became a writer out of some sense of innate understanding of language and love of reading. And then the women's movement was very helpful to her. Other women were really encouraging to her. So I saw this, like I got a lesson in this, just sort of being in my home as a child. And it was really, really um, incredible to see sort of feminism in action, you know, in the case of my mother. For anyone who hasn't read The Female Persuasion, I might get you to um, um, give a background to some of the key characters. We might start with Fate Frank, who is the, I suppose, inspiration of the book. And um, she had her own female persuasion. Um, you might yeah. tell me about her. Sure. So Faith Frank is this, you know, important figure in feminism. But as I said, two or three steps down from Gloria Steinem in terms of her fame, She was an editor of a magazine that I made up for the purposes of this book called Bloomer, after Amelia Bloomer, the feminist and uh, famous figure, social reformer and publisher. Uh, And Faith Frank had her heyday in the 1970s. And over the years, her star has dimmed a bit as feminism waxed and waned in different ways over time. Um, And she's now on the speaking circuit, lecturing at colleges. And she meets Greer Kadetsky, who is a very shy young woman. Um, In 2006, at age 18, Greer has grown up uh, not wealthy, kind of lower middle class in Massachusetts. And she's someone who can't really speak up, but she's filled with desires for herself. And she's at this frat party and a boy uh, gropes her and she doesn't know, wait a minute, did something real happen to me? What, What happened to me? Do I have a right to speak up about it? Is this what it's going to be like being female? She doesn't really know. One thing she does know is she has a boyfriend she loves named Corey Pinto. And Corey gets to go to Princeton University, the Ivy League school. Uh, He is the child of Portuguese immigrants. His mother cleans houses. And he is someone who is very eager to get out of his life growing up. And Greer is someone eager to get out of her life. Her parents have never really spent that much time with her. They're they're kind of stoners. They don't know that you're you're meant to have dinners with your child. They're both going to go to Ivy League schools, but her parents kind of mess up the financial aid forms that you need to go to such a school or any school that's not a state university. And she gets into Yale, but she can't go. She goes to this kind of uh, school that she doesn't want to be at, and Corey goes off to Princeton. They are separated, and when she's at that college... She meets not only Faith, but also the woman who will be her best friend, whose name is Z. Eisenstadt. And she is um, a queer woman who is political 
and kind of can speak up, unlike Greer, and is very supportive and very encouraging and funny and a kind of delightful person and encourages her friend to go meet Faith Frank. So those are really the main characters who we are with for the entire book. I have to say I really enjoyed uh, reading Faith Frank's character and she's by no means perfect. She is politely put as uh, maybe pragmatic at best. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But she's a very real person and, um, you know, she clearly is quite compromised in lots of levels of her life. There are so many contradictions within her personality. She's a bit of a hypocrite. But in a lot of ways, we're all hypocrites. We're all selling out. We're all quite compromised. So she's quite rounded within her imperfections, isn't she? She's somebody who really is trying to say, what does it need? You know, what do I need to do to get it done? And we may disagree with some of the things and be shocked by them, but she really is keeping her eye on what she thinks is the best way to do it. And that's the world that she's in now. She's really complicated. Um, I really like writing her because I got to go back into her past. She goes to Las Vegas to be a cocktail waitress in the 1960s. And there's a, you know, for me, writing that era, you know, era was fascinating. It was a different time for women in so many ways. And you touch on the fact that, you know, her parents didn't see that she could go to college, that that wasn't seen as her trajectory, that they were she's more concerned. Allowed, yeah, she's not allowed. Well, she's allowed to go to college. But unlike my mother, she she has to live at home to go to college. So it's different from my mother, who this was the 1940s. For Faith, it's the 1960s. So I, I wanted to, you know, she's not my mother, uh, just me get that out of the way. She's she's a very different person. I presume though, when you're saying she's not my mother, um, you know, there I presume you've met lots of Frank, uh, Faith Franks in the world, lots of Greers in the world, um, not so many Corys, I would think he was a rather special character. But um a lot of people, I suppose, reading this book could see a lot of themselves because we get a lot of kind of universal stuff, don't we? Well I think that you could say that the two women really occupy different roles in terms of Perennial mentor, perennial protege. You could kind of divide up the world that way a little bit. Who is someone who sort of says, I have control, I am happy and comfortable to sort of lecture people and tell them what needs to be done? And other people are sort of saying, I would like to listen and absorb for much of my life. So I don't know that I know, you know, many characters who are like these people exactly or even inexactly, but I think that some people are comfortable being what a friend of mine calls permissionaries, people who give permission to other people. And then there are other people who feel they need permission. And you could maybe divide it that way. Corey is someone who, yeah, I mean, he's described at one point, there's a kind of pivotal moment for him when Greer's mother says he's a big feminist. So the notion of what is a feminist, you know, question that you asked me at the top, that comes into play in this book in terms of Corey, who does what is called women's work, kind of classically, and and ends up cleaning houses with his mother for a while. But it's quite a twist with Corey because he almost comes across as the most warmest, most principled, caring um, uh, character in the book, and he's a man. So I liked that twist in it. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I mean, a novel, I'm hoping that a novel should be something that doesn't just sort of follow a straight line, but you follow the characters where the writer was compelled to take them. 
can I ask you, what's your philosophy of sisterhood? Because one of the aspects of the book that you really tease out is the nature of female um, friendship and um, the ambitions within friendship and how competitive things can get and whether we're willing or not to give our friends a leg up, if it could anyway um, interfere with our own professional ambitions. And I thought how you uh, presented that story in the book was very, very clever. Um, I'm just wondering, what's your own philosophy of sisterhood? I think that it's more how I've lived rather than what I've thought of as a philosophy. Um, I really did grow up in something of a matriarchy because my father was off at work and my mother was home writing or being frustrated and not writing, and I have a sister and no brothers. And it was clear to me as I got older and became a writer, I could see the differences in the way men, uh, literary males, were treated versus you know, literary females. And there was a sense talking about this with other writers that we we just didn't want to deal, you know, we just didn't want to have to kind of endlessly be frustrated and angry. We wanted to do the work we wanted to do. And we talked about our work and we supported each other in a very, very natural way. I think sisterhood comes very naturally to me. It feels like the right thing to do. And it feels like the main thing to do. Like I just, my feminism it's not like I, there was a button that had to be pushed. I grew up seeing the importance of it, but also the real pleasure in helping other women and being helped. It, it just sort of feels right. It's interesting. You um, um, wrote the book uh, pre-Harvey um, Weinstein, the whole scandal there. Oh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's such a prescient read. And now when you think, you know, over the course of the Me Too campaign and all of what we've seen, um, the timing of the book is its hugely remarkable, isn't it? It was pretty weird because, you know, I had been writing it for uh, a few years, really. And when I started writing the book, you know, feminism, you know, it, it, it sometimes it would be written about. It depends on where you looked. But, you know, it wasn't like this sort of hot 